Welcome to ABA Ultimate Showdown, a podcast promoting constructive, respectful, and professional discourse to advance the field of behavior analysis. This is round seven of the showdown. Our seventh topic will center around prompts, primarily whether or not it's appropriate for professionals to use physical prompts. We want to make it clear, while we are not experts on the specific topics we discuss, we consider ourselves lifelong learners always looking to gain more knowledge. During this debate, we will construct arguments for both sides to present the audience with a comprehensive and balanced view of two sides of a controversial topic. We've recorded this episode remotely during the 2020 pandemic, so we thank you for your understanding that each of the speakers' audio may vary during this round. We are also psyched because publication of this episode marks exactly one year since we released our introductory episode. Thank you so much for listening to our debates throughout the past year. And a special thank you to everyone who's contributed articles, feedback, and the elite group who have researched and participated in the debates. We hope to have opened your mind at least a little and look forward to presenting you with even more debates in the future. We love making them and welcome all of your feedback and even your participation. So contact us if you want to get more involved. Participating today are Jillian Planer D. Tiberius and Allison Tango. And I'm your host, Megan Miller, a clinical supervisor and BCBA with Graham Behavior Services. I was born and raised on the Jersey Shore. I graduated with a special education undergraduate degree from the College of New Jersey. I spent the first 12 years of my career working as a special education teacher in Hawaii and New Jersey. At Kane University, I specialized in high-incidence disabilities, emotional disturbance, while getting my Master's of Arts degree. I received my postgraduate certification in ABA from Penn State University. I'm also certified as an emergency medical technician in New Jersey. Anytime I'm not working with clients or parents or producing GBS's podcast is spent with my husband, my three little guys, and my incredible family and friends. Hi, I am Jillian Planer de Tiberius. I'm a BCBA and the clinical director of Graham Behavior Services. I graduated with my undergrad degree in psychology from Rowan University and with my master's in ABA from Caldwell University. I've worked in public and private schools and with individuals with special needs in home and in their communities for the past 10 years. Hi, I'm Allie Tango. I'm a behavior technician with Grand Behavior Services. I graduated from Rowan University with a degree in communications, and I've worked with both the public school system and private companies for the past five years to bring ABA services to the autism community. Thanks, ladies. Let's get started with the debate. While researching round seven, Jillian and Allison have worked together to research relevant sources. Each source is cited in the show notes found at grandbehaviorservices.com slash showdown. Today, we will include a coin toss to determine speaking order. Each debater will have equal structured speaking time and will have an opportunity to ask and respond to questions. If you're interested in learning more about the debate format that we use, check out our show notes or listen to our podcast's introductory episode. We want to emphasize our most important modification to traditional debate formats. There is no winner and there's no loser. Our intention is to present a different point of view of a controversial topic that you may not have previously considered. We're aiming to disseminate the science in a constructive way by sharing knowledge and respect. The motion for this episode will be physical prompts should be avoided. Allison will represent the pro side of the the debate, that physical prompts should be avoided. Jillian will represent the con side, that physical prompts should be used. 
During this debate, we will reference a variety of prompts. I want to make sure the most commonly used ones are clearly defined so the debaters know exactly what they're debating. Prompts, in general, are defined by McDuff, Krantz, and McClanahan as, quote, antecedent stimuli that are effective in getting responses to occur. The prompt is added to a situation in which the naturally occurring stimulus does not yet control the response, i.e. it is not a discriminative stimulus for that response. These additional antecedent stimuli are effective prompts only if the youngster reliably imitates the modeled action or reliably follows the spoken instruction. Prompts are often defined as internal, quote, auxiliary, extra, or artificial stimuli, um, end of our uh, internal quote, that are presented immediately before or after the stimuli that will eventually cue the learner to display the behavior of interest at the appropriate time or in the relevant circumstances, end quote. Verbal prompts are defined by McDuff, Krantz, and McClanahan as, quote, words, instructions, or questions that are supposed to direct a person to engage in a target response, end quote. Video modeling is defined by De Janeiro, Reed, Cotting, Catania, and McGuire as, quote, an individualized instructional video that depicted a model, for example, an experienced teacher, demonstrating accurate implementation of all the intervention steps with a, internal quote, student, and overall quote. It may or may not include, quote, a voiceover component and on-screen text detailed relevant aspects of the procedures, end quote. Another point we want to drive home is that in best practice, uh, prompts are used to teach new skills. The Autism Partnership Hong Kong put out some great visuals describing the concept that we provide prompts when the child is not able to perform a task due to their ability, not due to their behavior. If a behavior is preventing task completion, a functional behavior assessment should be conducted. All right, so now that we've specifically defined everything that's going to be discussed, let's start this party off right with a coin toss. The winner will get to choose whether to speak first or second. Heads goes to Allison, representing the pro side. Tails goes to Jillian, representing the con side. It's Tails. Jillian, you got this. Yay, I won. Uh, Okay, I think I'll go first speaking. Okay, great. Thank you. Jillian will speak first for the con side and give the opening remarks discussing that behavior analysts should use physical prompts. Again, the motion is physical prompts should be avoided. Thanks, Megan. So excited I get to go first. Behavior analysts are certainly allowed to use physical prompts in our practice, but obviously within reason. First, There are years of data supporting the successful use of physical prompts within behavior analysis. Literally, there is published peer-reviewed research showing successfully teaching skills across multiple domains from the beginning of ABA to present day. Physical prompts have been able to teach self-help skills, language and communication skills, vocational skills, and so on, in addition to being able to teach behavior reduction strategies. These articles are published in well-respected journals, such as Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis, in which research is peer-reviewed, goes through multiple rounds of edits. In addition, conducting research 
has to go through internal review board, IRB approval, which means the procedures have been reviewed by medical professionals and individuals inside and outside of ABA. This means the procedures have been deemed safe for the individual who will experience the interventions included in the research. The risks have been weighed against the benefits, and the benefits have come out far and ahead. In addition to the research backing of physical prompting, physical prompts are more successfully faded. Remember, as a behavior analyst, we want to essentially work ourselves out of a job. We do not want our learners to depend on us for prompts for the rest of time. We want them to develop full independence, which means we have to fade our prompts. There is often a hesitation, as well there should be, in using and incorporating verbal prompts. Even though I've researched this before and I didn't really find a ton of research stating which prompt was better or worse, so to speak, than others, the importance of paying attention to verbal prompts over physical prompts is that a verbal prompt embeds the instructor in the directional sequence which means the learner is attending directly to you as the instructor to hear the verbal prompt. So if you're teaching brushing teeth and you have to deliver the verbal prompt to say, open your toothpaste, the learner is attending to you as the instructor to hear the instruction, therefore taking their attention away from the task, which in this case is opening the toothpaste. Now, if in this situation you used a physical prompt, You could physically prompt a learner's hand to pick up the toothpaste, then prompt the other hand to open the toothpaste, then proceed with the rest of the steps. This takes the instructor more out of the equation because you're most likely providing the physical prompt from behind the learner, and they're able to attend more to the toothpaste, which is the direction at hand. This also relates to the fading process. There is a plethora of research demonstrating how to fade prompts, including most to least prompt fading, least to most prompt fading, and graduated guidance. Articles such as Libby, Weiss, Bancroft, and Ahern from 2008 indicate that the most successful fading procedure will be based on the learner, the program you're working on, and the progress being made on the skill. Despite all of this research, there are some individuals who may use physical prompts incorrectly. I want to be very clear, physical prompts should never be forced. They're a guide, not a punishment procedure, not even a reinforcement procedure. If you think that a physical prompt is functioning as a reinforcer, in other words, your learner is engaging in a challenging behavior more often in order to gain access to physical prompts, you should change tactics and discontinue use of physical prompts for that program. Same thing goes if you think that a physical prompt is acting as a punisher and your learner is engaging in escape extinction behaviors, you should discontinue use of physical prompts for that program too. Also, besides not acting as reinforcement or punishment, physical prompts should never be rough such as grabbing, pulling, or twisting your learner's arms or any other body part. They should never be used based on your anger over your client not acting or behaving in a certain way. If this is the issue, there are other ethical concerns at play here. From Merrill Winston in Behavioral Observations podcast episode 87, he talks about ounces versus pounds of pressure. Basically stating that you need to keep in mind that ounces of pressure, so a very small amount, represents a physical prompt. Pounds of pressure, so a much higher amount, 
represents more than a physical prompt and most likely a restraint. Well, restraints are not what we're talking about here. We're discussing physical prompts, which should indicate to everyone listening and providing these prompts that all that's required is ounces of pressure, so a minimal amount. To reference another big influencer in behavior analysis, Dr. Greg Hanley, everything should be televisable. He discussed this when I saw a presentation from him on the practical functional assessment. You should be able to run your entire session as if it were going to be broadcast on the news that night. What would people say about you? If they're saying that your session looks rough, like you're trying to injure a child to gain compliance, or anything else negative, your procedures most likely need to be revised. If you leave the session and you don't feel good about what happened during that session, you need to revise your procedures because you're most likely not using just physical prompts. You're most likely using something closer to restraint. There is no one way to work with individuals with special needs. Even though there is research backing for use of physical prompts, you need to allow your data to guide your decision-making. Pay attention to your learner's behavior and your use of prompts overall. Keep in mind how important fading is no matter which prompt you're using. Thanks, Jillian. You brought up some really good points. Now we're going to move on to Allison, who's going to give the opening remarks representing the pro side of the debate, stating that behavior analysts should not use physical prompts. Again, the motion is physical prompts should be avoided. Thanks, Megan. Physical prompting is an intrusive method that should not be used, particularly on pubescent and post-pubescent learners. Outside of the developmentally disabled community, physical touch requires consent by the parties involved. For many learners, informed consent is not something they are able to understand and provide. Therefore, physical prompting should not be used as all individuals have the right to bodily autonomy. Celia B. Fisher discusses this in great detail and brings up extremely important points regarding consent. Additionally, physical prompts, as in all prompting, pose the risk of prompt dependency. When implementing physical prompts in the home, particularly by family members, prompt dependency can be difficult to recognize, especially by those who are not the BCBA. McDuff, Krantz, and McClanahan discuss the difficulties of an individual becoming prompt dependent, in which they are responding to the prompt rather than the stimuli. Prompt dependency can also result in a resistance to change in which the learner will only respond to a prompt given in a particular way, as referenced by Wilson, Beamish, Hay, and Atwood. While a BCBA should be more than capable of identifying prompt dependency, family members, such as parents, are not nearly as likely to identify or prevent dependency from occurring. The use of less intrusive prompting is not only better for the learner, but provides more treatment integrity, allowing parents and other caregivers to more readily recognize prompt dependency. I argue that a combination of positive reinforcement and video modeling is a more appropriate and effective way of teaching, particularly with hygiene and self-help skills. Video modeling in particular has the ability to increase treatment integrity, eliminating variables from one instructor to another, as discussed by G. Gennaro Reed, Cotting, Catania, and McGuire. Video modeling also has the benefit of being non-intrusive in that the learner does not need to be physically touched and could be cued to the video as needed. Video modeling also presents the ability to present the target behavior in different ways. By varying the video presented, the learner can have generalization integrated into the teaching of the skill. 
Video model teaching also has proven to be maintained after the skill is initially mastered, as shown by Shipley, Benamou, Lutzker, and Tobman. There is also significant discussion that successful animal training does not require physical prompting to teach target behaviors. As Mary Barbara points out, a whale trainer at SeaWorld, no matter how controversial, does not physically prompt the whale to wave his fin. The trainer withholds reinforcement until the desired behavior is performed. It's also possible to teach more complex skills and chains of behavior with no physical prompting. Barnabas the Rat, of Brown University fame, has been taught a complex series of tasks, including climbing a spiral staircase and raising a flag, with no physical prompting. While Barnabas is more of an exercise in forward and backward chaining, the unspoken context is that he is successfully taught these skills without being physically prompted to do so. The full story of Barnabas can be found amongst the archives of Brown Alumni Monthly. This shows that skills can be taught without the use of physical prompts, thereby also eliminating the need for prompt fading. In addition to physical prompts not being necessary, I would like to posit that they also put learners at risk. It is widely recognized that there is a significant lack of sexual education for those in the developmentally disabled community. All people, including those with disabilities, will go through puberty. With that change comes sexual and romantic desires. Tracy, Taylor, and Abernathy really dive into the profound need for sexual health education for individuals with disabilities. The developmentally disabled are particularly vulnerable because sexual education is simply not available to them. Take a moment, if you will, to think of each time throughout your career when you were with a learner in a setting that would not be considered appropriate for a neurotypical learner. Toileting skills, feminine hygiene, showering, dressing. There are many instances in which we teach skills otherwise considered private. Oftentimes, these skills are taught with the use of physical prompting, both to prevent and correct errors. We might prompt appropriate washing in the shower, pulling down clothes to get undressed, or to remove undergarments to use the bathroom. Several studies go over the teaching of hygiene and life skills in detail, including, but not limited to, articles by Langone and Burton, Vizi, Valentino, Lowe, McElroy, and LeBlanc, and Matson, DiLorenzo, and Esvelt Dawson. While those prompts are delivered appropriately at the time, I ask you to think about how many different instructors that learner may have had over the course of his or her lifetime. It would be reasonable to assume that the learner adjusts to unknown adults, new staff, being in close proximity and engaging in physical touch while in vulnerable situations, such as the bathroom or bedroom. It is this gradual and continued use of physical prompting in vulnerable situations, coupled with the lack of sexual education for developmentally disabled learners, that puts them at a higher than average risk to be sexually abused. While there is little to no research on this, I believe it is an incredibly important area that must be addressed. It is estimated that at least 39% of females with disabilities will experience sexual abuse, compared to 25% of the general female population. Many projections estimate the rates of sexual abuse to be significantly higher, according to an article by Nora J. Baladarian. I ask you to consider another possibility. Think about how many times in your career you have seen one learner physically prompt another. We tend to laugh or shake our heads ruefully at this byproduct of our teaching, and in most cases, it is harmless. 
But think now of an individual in his or her teens or 20s. He or she is experiencing sexual and romantic desire. They are with a peer who does not reciprocate those feelings. Is it far-fetched to think one may physically prompt the other to engage in the desired activity? Hugging, kissing, touching, all of these could be unwittingly prompted by one individual to another, with neither understanding that it is wrong to do so. In conclusion, I believe the benefits of physical prompting are far outweighed by the risks. Risks that are often undiscussed and unidentified because of a lack of awareness and understanding and a strong societal discomfort with the fact that disabled individuals are far more likely to be abused. Hey, I want to interrupt real fast to let you know that yes, ABA Ultimate Showdown's parent company, Grand Behavior Services, is an approved ACE provider, and a bunch of our rounds now count for continuing education credits. Great content and CEs, it's like the perfect combination. And it also supports us in developing and continuing the publication of this podcast. So thank you for your support. This episode will count for one ethics continuing education hour so in order to earn it you're gonna have to hop on over to our website grambehaviorservices.com slash showdown and enter the first code word twins did you know twins could have different birthdays and the longest recording accord uh the longest space between them according to research out of australia is 63 days which is insane to me that mother is a rock star first code word is twins like venus and serena Mary-Kate and Ashley, twins. Check out our other rounds to earn CE credits from your car, couch, run, or garden. We've got those elusive ethics and supervision credits, so let ABA Ultimate Showdown help you reach that magic 32 hours. And all of your support, again, will allow us to keep bringing you quality, thought-provoking content. So seriously, thank you so much. We really appreciate your support. Now, back to myself. All right. Thanks, Allison. A lot of good points that you brought up too. The next segment of our debate is the crossfire. Both sides will have the opportunity to ask and respond to each other's questions. We will begin with a question from, um, from Jillian representing the con side of the motion. Allison, responding, representing the pro side, will answer and then follow up with her own question. This alternating pattern is going to continue until the end of this segment. Again, the motion is physical prompts should be avoided. Debaters, please make sure you answer the question to the best of your ability and ask for clarification if necessary. And as always, keep it respectful. Allie, if you're recommending that physical prompts should be avoided... What would you recommend as an appropriate prompt instead if the learner wasn't engaging in the task with a more subtle prompt, such as a gesture prompt? Thanks, Jillian. My first response would be a video model rather than a physical prompt. This allows the learner to see the appropriate response without being physically touched. Video models can show detailed steps for long chains, and multiple videos can be used to incorporate generalization of teaching. Video models are also significantly less intrusive and can be faded in much the same way a picture schedule would be. If you're recommending that physical prompts be used, how would you address the identification and rectification of prompt dependency, including stimulus over selectivity? Prompt dependency can occur with any prompt type, 
And some would argue that other prompts that you've recommended are more difficult to fade, such as a verbal prompt or even a video model. The more difficult and time-consuming a prompt is to fade, the more likely prompt dependency is to develop. You mentioned that parents might be confused about recognizing prompt dependency. However, if they're receiving quality parent training and support, their BCBA should still be present and able to recognize prompt dependency. Wouldn't it be more effective for a BCBA to teach parents how to recognize these indicators and to learn how to successfully prompt their children and fade those prompts rather than using a potentially less successful prompt? In a perfect world, you may be correct. However, I think it's worth taking into account that not all parents would be capable of successfully recognizing prompt dependency, particularly if there are multiple children in the household. When we provide services in the home, we are there with the sole purpose and focus of helping one particular learner. We are present for a few hours, we follow a written guideline, and we're able to adjust that guide outside of the home as necessary to then implement on our next visit. Parents are with their children constantly, multitasking and trying to get through the day. If a child has become prompt dependent with your given example of toothbrushing, how likely is it that mom or dad, at the end of a long day and while trying to get multiple children ready for bed, will recognize prompt dependency for that task? Furthermore, if they do recognize it, how likely are they to adjust their own behavior and potentially sacrifice the ease and timeliness of their nighttime routine to adjust? There's always a fine line between what is best and what is practical. Given the lack of sexual education for those in the autism community, how would you separate and teach learners the difference between appropriate touch from instructors during teaching, such as in hygiene skills, and the inappropriate touch of another adult? This is a great question, Allie, and honestly, it deserves more attention than just on this podcast. I think our entire sexual education program for individuals with special needs has to be revamped. From a young age, we're teaching our typically developing learners about consent and appropriate versus inappropriate touching. I can vouch for this. I have an 18-month-old daughter, and I'm already trying to teach her these things. This is more prevalent now than it ever was before as parents and educators become more aware of the importance of this. However, it's still extremely rare for it to be thought of in the autism community. So to answer the original question, I wouldn't only teach individuals that I'm using physical prompting with this skill. I would make it my ultimate goal to teach all individuals the difference between appropriate and inappropriate touching using the same methods we use to teach other safety skills, such as discrete trial instruction and natural environment teaching. All right, I have a similar question for you. Just because you avoid the use of physical prompts doesn't mean that individuals with special needs will never experience being touched. What would you suggest to teach the appropriate touch from others, such as hugs from a family member, and the inappropriate touch of another adult that's more unwanted? This is a really great question, and I'm so glad you brought this up. I think this really brings up the question of informed consent by the individual. When we use prompting, we are not asking for permission or even waiting for a social cue to touch the learner. Additionally, if we are using physical prompting as a response to noncompliance, we are teaching the learner that you can put hands on another person if they are not doing what you ask them to do. I think there is an important distinction between affectionate touch from family and the guiding touch of 
teaching. A simple solution can be to add, can I help you if needed? Though that would also add an element of verbal prompting. Again, this is a complicated topic and I'm so glad to be able to discuss the nuances with you. Since physical prompts are so often a large part of teaching, how would you prevent a learner from physically prompting a peer in an inappropriate way? This is another really great question and my answer is going to be similar to my answer prior. I wouldn't only teach a student that I'm using physical prompts with to avoid inappropriately touching peers. I would teach all students this skill and teach them about appropriate touching and when it's okay and not okay to touch another person. We deal frequently with decreasing aggression and teaching our learners to ask for things they want, ask for help, and sit appropriately without engaging in aggression. We can also teach individuals when it's appropriate to touch another person and what constitutes appropriate or inappropriate touching. That was a really productive crossfire, ladies. Thank you for putting so much thought into your questions and responses. Our next segment will be the rebuttal. Jillian, representing the con side, will speak first. Jillian, it's your turn. Thanks, Megan. Allie, you make a lot of really great points in your opening. However, as I stated, physical prompts are not rough. should not be used to force the learner to do anything. If you're using physical prompts and your learner seems like they're bothered by physical touch more than not wanting to do the task or follow your direction, but something that's indicating potential trauma. Mm -hmm. As a responsible BCBA, you need to look into if they may have experienced trauma in the past. Have they been physically or sexually abused in the past? Trauma-informed care is something that is newer to the field of behavior analysis, but something that BCBAs should really focus on in receiving training. Straight from the BACB Ethical Code are 2.05, the rights and prerogatives of clients, and 3.03, medical consultation. These two ethical codes cover a variety of topics. However, they would also cover the importance of knowing previous trauma experiences your learner may have had. Many BCBAs have worked with a learner and described them as, oh, they don't like to be touched. But have we looked past the surface of that statement? If the answer is no, then we should fix that. However, this doesn't mean that all physical prompts should just be avoided as a blanket statement. Speaking of the BACB ethical code, look at 1.01, reliance on scientific knowledge. This means that we need to rely on our research, which largely indicates that the prompt hierarchy, with physical prompting at the top, should be used. From McDuff, Krantz, and McClanahan in 2001, the widely accepted prompt hierarchy, which is physical guidance, partial physical guidance, modeling, gesture prompts, and verbal prompts, starts with physical guidance at the top, so essentially providing the most assistance at the top of that pyramid. As discussed, there is a wealth of research discussing the success of physical prompts and then prompt fading strategies. As stated in my answers above, sexual assault is an extremely real concern for all individuals, but especially for individuals with special needs. Individuals with special needs tend to have impaired social skills, may have a lack of understanding of social norms, and are not consistently taught sex education. There is a real need to teach them about the rights they have over their own bodies and to empower them to know if they do not want something to happen, they can say no, and that should be respected. 
Now, of course, this is a hard skill to teach. What if what they don't want to do is brush their teeth? You can't let any child go every day without brushing their teeth. However, you do not want to use physical prompts to force them to brush their teeth. That would be sending the wrong message. We should assess why don't they want to brush their teeth. Is something causing them pain, like a cavity? Is the skill too difficult and they're not experiencing any success? Have you not provided a strong enough reinforcer for this less preferred skill? There are many things that could cause avoidance behavior for a skill such as toothbrushing. And as a BCBA, we need to assess and update our program to be met with success. In addition, as our learners reach the age that typically developing students are receiving sex education, we should be either programming for our students to learn similar skills, or we should be advocating for them to learn these skills. Right now, this is an area that is undertaught. Dr. Bobby Gallagher out of New Jersey discusses extensively the importance of sex education for individuals with special needs, along with how severely this is undertaught. She makes many points on this topic, but also states that if we do not teach appropriate sex education to our learners with special needs, they may attempt to engage in these skills inappropriately and may commit sexual assault crimes unknowingly. Therefore, you could conclude that the lack of education in this area is the cause of learning inappropriate touching and being exposed to inappropriate touching, rather than exclusively the use of physical prompts. I think more so the focus should be on trauma-informed care and sex education, as opposed to abandoning using physical prompts that have been so widely supported in the research. Thanks, Jillian. A lot to consider there. Now, Allison, representing the pro side, will give her rebuttal. Take it away, Allison. Jillian, you make a really great point regarding trauma-informed care. I agree that this is something more staff should be educated on. When working with an individual, it's important to recognize the signifiers of trauma rather than rely on parents or guardians to inform us of past trauma. However, I would argue that all individuals have the right to bodily autonomy, not just those who have experienced a trauma. Unwanted physical contact is intrusive, regardless of developmental level and past trauma or lack thereof, and gentle touching does not equate appropriate touching. Even a gentle touch, if opposed with equal and opposite force by the learner, can actually become a restraint. Mary Barber discusses this in some detail in her article regarding the use of physical prompts. I'm also glad you brought up the prompt hierarchy. While the BACB has strict ethical guidelines that are both admirable and thorough, I want to address the lack of research and attention to both sexual education and sexual abuse statistics within the developmentally disabled community. While physical prompts are considered easiest to fade, I believe it is possible that the negative side effects of physical prompting have not been fully explored, as evidenced by the lack of research regarding sexual abuse and education. We honestly don't know if and how physical prompting over several years and multiple instructors may contribute to the possibility of sexual abuse or inappropriate sexual advances towards a peer. I'm glad to hear that you agree that sexual education is a real area of concern for the developmentally disabled community. 
I hate to say it again, but I'm also glad you brought up the difficulties of teaching learners to say no and when no is appropriate. This is a difficult task for all children and admittedly for some adults. I think your strategies for identifying and rectifying refusal are strong. I just argue that the solution does not require physical prompting. I would also call attention to your points regarding prompt fading. Our goal is always to teach ourselves out of a job. Prompt dependency is something BCBAs are trained to recognize early. But what about when the BCBA is not present? So much of what we do is helping parents and families gain the skills needed to continue to support and grow with their child. Prompt dependency can be difficult to identify when you are not a trained professional and could unwittingly lead to parents creating more prompt dependent children. We are not only responsible for the skills implemented while we are with the family, but for the education provided to continue building independence without instructors present. Thanks, Allison. Some more thought-provoking points. The next segment of our debate is the second crossfire. I, as the moderator, will ask the questions of both sides. We will attempt to keep an alternating pattern of responding. Debaters, please make sure you answer the question to the best of your ability and ask for clarification if possible. And as always, keep it respectful. All right, so Jillian, you mentioned that we should only use trauma-informed care for individuals who appear bothered by physical touch. Allie addressed in her rebuttal that many individuals with or without disabilities who may have experienced trauma may not display this kind of reaction. How would you address the emerging literature that all individuals should be treated using trauma-informed care? Thanks so much for this question, Megan. I think in relation to my position about physical prompts, I highlighted the importance of trauma-informed care. However, trauma-informed care and behavior analysis are currently having a meeting of the minds. Behavior analysis has traditionally resisted the notion of the mentalistic mind. However, in modern-day ABA, we are getting more in touch with other fields, including recognizing the importance of trauma-informed care. From the Trauma-Informed Care Project website, quote, trauma-informed care is an organizational structure and treatment framework that involves understanding, recognizing, and responding to the effects of all types of trauma. Trauma Trauma-informed care also emphasizes physical, psychological, and emotional safety for both consumers and providers, and helps survivors rebuild a sense of control and empowerment. End quote. I know this sounds mentalistic in its definition. However, this perfectly aligns with what behavior analysts are trying to do. We want to build up our clients' control and independence of their own lives. We want to understand them. Just because we're going to look at it through the structure of reinforcement and learning history doesn't mean we can't also be sensitive to their trauma history. I think BCBAs need more education in this area. And clearly, I'm not the only one that thinks this way. Just a quick Google search revealed at least five continuing education workshops that BCBAs could take related to this exact topic. I think that this is the movement going forward, and I'm all for it. I might even sign up for one of those workshops myself. (laughs) Let me know when it is, and I'm going to sign up with you. All right, Allie, uh, this next question's for you. Jill mentioned that current research in ABA supports using a prompt hierarchy with physical prompts as an integral part of it. How would you address going against current research by abandoning physical prompts? What a great question, Megan. 
My opinion is that our current research is not necessarily complete enough to support the current hierarchy. We know that physical prompts are easiest to fade and result in less prompt dependency than verbal prompts. However, I believe we do not have the appropriate amount of data regarding long-term effects of physical prompting. The sad fact is that there is a lack of both sexual education and data regarding sexual abuse of the developmentally disabled. I don't think it's a stretch to think there could be a correlation, possibly even some level of causation, between years of physical prompting and the sexual abuse of these learners. Until we dive further into the long-term effects of physical prompting, I believe appropriate substitutions, such as video modeling, are appropriate and successful. We definitely have a long way to come in that area. All right, thanks. Jillian, you mentioned that when using physical prompts, you have to use ounces of pressure and be careful to avoid using pounds of pressure. How do you suggest that BCBAs communicate this with frustrated parents or caregivers who may overuse physical prompts to get their children to comply with demands? Thanks, Megan. This is also such a great question. And in my opinion, this is not really a question related only to physical prompts. Being a parent at all is very challenging sometimes. And now compound those usual difficulties with a child who has behavioral challenges, feeding or eating disorders, sicknesses, and then add on a parent who works full time and is trying to balance all of these things. This could lead any person to a point of frustration, and we should work with parents the same way we would work with anyone else. Recognize the barriers that are preventing behavior changes, and then program the solutions. Keep in mind, even though the issue at hand is physical prompting that is too rough, therefore is dangerous and also most likely unsuccessful, the solution to this is probably much smaller than that at the beginning of how the parent interacts with the child. We have an amazing parenting program at Grand Behavior Services, Purposeful Parenting, which can address ways parents can interact with their child to make their overall relationship more successful. I would suggest you start at this place or something similar and also teach additional ways to provide prompts and feedback about the importance of using them correctly. That's a great suggestion, and having poured through a ton of research in order to help create that purposeful parenting resource, I can vouch for it being grounded in the science. Thanks, Jill. All right, Allie, research shows that verbal prompts may elicit a stronger prompt dependency than any other type, including physical prompts. How would you address parents and professionals who insist that physical prompts be used and cite evidence-based practices? Such a great question. I think it's important to not replace physical prompting with verbal prompting. While verbal prompting is less intrusive, it does embed the instructor in the task, causing the learner to be cued by the instructor's direction rather than the natural setting. Video modeling is a happy medium between the two. It avoids the intrusiveness of physical prompts, but also removes the instructor from the task. And because of the technology we have today, video modeling can be extremely dynamic. You can video an entire chain of tasks, part of a chain, independent steps, embed video models into a picture chain. The possibilities really are endless. And as I mentioned before, video modeling increases treatment integrity since there's no variance between instructors. 
even better, it can be used to increase generalization if different videos are used, thus avoiding a learner's rigidity over a task being prompted in the exact same way each time it is completed. You make so many good points about video modeling, Allie, and I don't know much about it, so I'm going to have to dive into some of those resources cited in our show notes. All right, last question, and it's a question for both of you. You're both recommending increased sex education for individuals with special needs, but how do you think this directly impacts the use of physical prompts? I think increasing sex education would actually highlight the positive uses of physical prompts and how we should be appropriately using them. If children are made more aware of inappropriate versus appropriate touching, they will be more aware of the purpose of physical prompts. This will allow us to provide more successful prompts in addition to keeping everyone involved safer. Well, I think the best part about increasing sexual education is that it draws attention to the invasiveness of physical prompts. We see images in the media every day of men touching women in a way that they claim was appropriate, only to find out the women were extremely uncomfortable. The power dynamic we see on the news is mimicked in our classrooms and home sessions. We are instructors brought in to teach skills and decrease problem behaviors. We are often in the middle of tantrums, non-compliance, and defiance. We are in bathrooms and bedrooms while learners dress and undress. How can we expect our learners to know the difference between trained professionals helping them through unwanted tasks and predatory behavior from another possibly authoritative figure? Incorporating sexual education, informed consent, and the ability to decline physical prompting is a critical step we are missing right now. If the individual is not able to give informed consent, I think it is our responsibility to accept that physical prompting may never be appropriate for that person, just as a sexual act is never okay if there was no informed consent. Thanks so much, ladies. I'm really enjoying hearing your feedback on all of these questions and this topic in general. Our next and last segments will be the summary and final focuses. Jill, representing the con side, will speak first. Jill, the floor is yours. Thanks, Megan. I've already talked about the BACB ethical codes throughout this podcast, but there are many more that do apply here. To name a few that are designed to protect our clients, we have 1.07, exploitative relationships, 2.05, rights and prerogatives of clients, 7.01, promoting an ethical culture, and 7.02, ethical violations by others and risk of harm. All of these relate to protecting our clients, not engaging in exploitative relationships with them, promoting ethics, and also overall protecting our clients from harm. As doctors have the Hippocratic Oath, of which states, quote, do no harm, end quote, or as Hughes wrote in 2007, quote, first do no harm, then try to prevent it, end quote, we have these codes to protect our clients from risk of harm, and that additionally guide us to prevent harm when, from our procedures or from ourselves. We also have codes such as 4.02, involving clients in planning and consent, 4.03, individualized behavior change programs, and 4.04, approving behavior change programs. These codes encourage us to work together with our clients and their families so we can identify if there is any past trauma or any history of issues with physical prompts. 
Individualizing our behavior plans means that there is no catch-all procedure. You cannot go in to write programs for a client and plug and play all of the programs you've used for a different learner and think you're going to have much success with the second learner. This applies to the use of physical prompts as well. We also have codes 4.08, considerations regarding punishment procedures, and 4.09, least restrictive procedures. If you have any indication that the physical prompts are acting as a punishment procedure or that the physical prompt is not the least restrictive procedure, program other types of prompts. I'm advocating that BCBAs are able to use physical prompts when appropriate, not that they can only use physical prompts to teach learners. Also, in relation to the worry of prompt dependency, remember as Judy Endow wrote in 2015, in relation to the use of prompts and working with individuals with autism, quote, for every prompt dependent student, there has been a prompt dependent teacher, end quote. If you find your physical prompts or any prompts really are leading to prompt dependency or leading to an exploitative relationship, or leading to pounds of pressure applied as opposed to ounces, or causing any other problems for your learner, be aware of them and learn how to change them. I'm going to interrupt one more time, and I want to just let you know that the second code word for this episode that will count for one ethics CE, woohoo, go ethics, is planes, P-L-N-E. S. Let me give you some airplane trivia. Did you know that planes were designed to withstand lightning strikes, which makes me feel a lot better about going back on planes whenever, you know, that happens. Um, planes, also the hit Disney movie that my kids love. Second code word is planes. Hop on over to Graham Behavior Services and you'll be able to enter that code word. And you are off with one ethics CE. So great job. And thanks for listening and supporting our podcast. Thanks, Jillian, for putting so much time into this debate. Great job. All right. Now giving her summary and final focus, Allison, representing the pro side, will make her closing statements. Allie, you have the floor. Realistically, halting all physical prompting in the ABA field is just not going to happen. As my opposition has pointed out, physical prompting is easier to fade than verbal prompting. It can often be used gently, and some may argue, unobtrusively. However, physical prompting does present ethical dilemmas that, in my opinion, have not been explored nearly enough. What I would like everyone to take away from this is that being effective in one area does not negate the problems caused in other areas. The successes we see today may be contributing to further problems down the line. As professionals, it is our job to continually question the methods we use, not just for efficacy, but for the emotional and psychological impact. Does physical prompting desensitize learners from the touch of adults? Does it teach learners that physical touch is okay if someone says no? Does it teach compliance in all situations, even in those that the learner should hold their ground? These are all hypothetical questions, but they have a basis in the data we use every day to teach our kids. As discussed earlier, informed consent should be a significant consideration when using physical prompting. At what point would you accept, please don't touch me, or I don't want to be touched right now, from a neurotypical child? 
Would you say the same of a developmentally disabled child? At the end of the day, we all need to consider what is best for the kids and adults we work with, not just what will look best on the graph. Physical prompting is one of many strategies that is effectively implemented every day in the ABA field, but maybe it shouldn't be. Thanks so much, Allison, and really both of you, for your thoughtful and thorough defense of each of your sides. So many important points were made today, and this is a really tough discussion with a lot of considerations that need to be made. We really need to look at each individual as a unique person that may benefit from one or several of a variety of research-based interventions. It's always important to consult with the team and create the best possible scenario for individuals in our care while we stay abreast of a current research. Stay tuned for our next ABA Ultimate Showdown episode. Our next topic will probably come out at the beginning of the summer, but we promise it won't burn you out. All right. If you have any ideas or topics for future debate, any respectful suggestions on ways we can improve this podcast, or if you're interested in being a guest debater, which we would love to have, please email showdown at grambehavior.com. If you've enjoyed what you've heard and found your aha moment, please subscribe to our podcast. Visit our website at gramhaviorservices.com slash showdown. Like or follow Graham Behavior Services on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram, or all of them, and visit our YouTube channel to be alerted when new episodes are out. We also appreciate your thoughtful review on the platform that you listen to us. Finally, we ask you, our audience, two things. The first, be respectful and thoughtful when you respond to other people and their ideas. Remember that everyone has a unique learning history that has brought them to this moment. It will make you a better person and further promote behavior analysis. And two, go forth and deliver good ABA. This podcast has been brought to you by Graham Behavior Services. Graham Behavior Services provides quality, comprehensive evidence-based therapy to individuals with any behavior challenges or an autism spectrum disorder to create effective behavior change in themselves while empowering their families to help them pursue productive, purposeful, and fulfilling lives. Graham Behavior Services, professional, supportive, optimistic, proactive, compassionate, scientific, trustworthy.